Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, Kim. Good morning. Yes. And today we, uh, well, Melbourne's had a wonderful week, really, because the trains got stopped completely. Completely, yeah. Yeah. Uber gouged. $400 to get to the end. (laughs) Yeah, God. Yeah. They're such vultures. Yeah. And um, big fires. Big fires out your way. Yeah, yeah. Um, out uh, Coolaroo. Coolaroo. Broadmeadows, Camberfield, Coolaroo, Dallas, Glenroy, Hatfield, Oak Park. All affected, but of course, actually, the entire place. If you came into the city on uh, Friday, you would have smelt it in the air. Yeah, um, it's really awful stuff. You can taste it. Yeah. Major recycle, very strange, huge paddocks of um, recycled stuff. It looked like a disaster about to happen, actually. Yeah, and how many fires were there previously? Three. That's right. Anyway, Corey Green, uh, a previous Solidarity Breakfast uh, presenter, she went out to Coolaroo and uh, put together a report, finding out from people what effects it was happening on them and that sort of stuff. So we'll be playing that. We're going to find out about Venezuela. Yeah, I'd like to know what's going on. Yes, we're going to see if we can get someone to tell us about that. Uh, Lou Wheeler from uh, the uh, Fair Go for Pensioners is going to tell us about a major event that's going to happen today. Yeah, a big meeting. Should I say when? Yeah, yeah Save Public Housing, which um, is happening today at 2pm. Um, and it's at the Richard Lynch Senior Citizens Centre, 27 Peacock Street, Brunswick West off Albion Street. But we'll... Announce that again, I'm sure. Yes, exactly. Uh, Kevin's going to be here. This is the week that was. And uh, Don Sutherland is going to tell us a little bit about that decision uh, where casual casuals can apparently make their way to full-time employment if they've been there for long enough. And uh, a couple of other things about uh, what would happen if we actually had a Labor government. Would they turn out their back on the workers? Ah. The Australian Unemployed Workers Union invites you all to a rousing Jam for Jobs and Justice concert on Sunday, July 30, featuring the Horn Stars, Reds Under the Bed and Moreland City Marching Band at the Bella Union Bar, Trades Hall, Carlton, from 2 to 5pm. For tickets, phone 96505699 or book online at bellaunion.com.au. $15 full, $10 concession. Raffles and prizes are part of the deal. For more info, contact unemployedworkersunion.com. 
help protect the rights and dignity of unemployed workers and pensioners. Get along to Jobs and Justice. Bella Union, Sunday, July 30. At 9am on Thursday, a recycling plant in Coolaroo in the northern suburbs caught fire, causing government authorities to advise residents of 115 nearby homes to evacuate. An evacuation centre was set up at Broadmeadows Aquatic and Leisure Centre, and yesterday representatives from the local council, the Metropolitan Fire Brigade, the police, the ambulance service, the Department of Health and the Environmental Protection Agency held a community meeting chaired by member for Broadmeadows, Frank Maguire. We'll hear excerpts from some of these speeches, starting with Frank Maguire. Welcome everybody. We're here, obviously, uh, in a situation that is distressful for a number of people, but we want to make sure that uh, everyone is taken care of. Priority one is public safety. And uh, we want to make sure that all the families and every individual here is taken care of the best way that we can. And we want to uh, then make sure that we can actually uh, put out this fire as soon as possible. And I want to actually congratulate all of the emergency services uh, organisations for their collaboration, the unity of purpose. It is a difficult fire because some of the mounds are about four or five metres high. There's plastic and it's in a really awkward set of circumstances where it is located. Then we have the high winds that have been blowing as well. So um, I've uh, also called for an inquiry into the series of fires that have now occurred on this same site. We need to establish the facts. No one understands why these have occurred. So we need to have uh, scrutiny and accountability and uh, compliance on that. But to uh, give you the immediate update, I'd like to introduce Ken Brown, the, Chief, the Deputy Chief Officer of the Metropolitan Fire Brigade. Ken. Good morning, everyone. And firstly, I, I want to apologise for the situation find yourself in, but I don't apologise for taking care of your safety. The challenging issue that we have is the size of the fire. So if you imagine a, a sporting oval, a large sporting arena, that's about the size of the burning area that's in there, and it's as high as the factory area. So it's very complex fire, difficult to get at, and burning a lot of plastics, cardboard and paper of recycled material. That's what's putting what we call the particulates, so those are little bits of dust that you see in the smoke, that's creating the issue for us. It's challenging with the weather that we've been facing. Um, with the wind blowing, it's actually pushing. Uh, it's twofold. It has a, an advantage in some way because it makes it not so much of a concentrate, but it also pushes it into areas that we don't want it to go in. So we're working very closely with the Weather Bureau to look at what the weather is over the next three days so as we plan together and work on how we can minimise the impacts of this. There's threefold that we're working on today. We're working on a strategy to, to extinguish the fire. So there's a separate group working on a strategy how we're going to extinguish the fire. And uh, a lot of us attended the Hazelwood Mine Fire. You would be aware of that. And the equipment that was used there, the special equipment, has been brought in today to assist us with trying to extinguish this fire. So we're, we're using every possible effort uh, to, to extinguish this fire. Then there's another strategy that's in place and it's about protecting the community. Running parallel with it is about how we manage the smoke and the impacts on the community itself. So you'll get the warnings coming out and giving the information. Um, we thank the City of Hume and the Mayor 
uh, for this um, the support we're getting in the, the centre here, the relief centre to get in here. Um, we'll make sure that we communicate um, with you. I think we're going to try and plan to have another one of these meetings at 6.30 uh, this evening to give you an update on where we're at. So we should be able to come back to you with the, how the strategy is working. We've also got a separate group working on business continuity um, because there's a lot of factories that have been impacted by this fire. So they're working closely with the businesses to try and work out a strategy of how we can get businesses returned to normal. So we, we make sure the key messaging goes out that you, you understand what the situation is and we're working closely with the EPA now and the Department of Health and Human Service and the Chief Health Officer on analysing the specialist advice on particulate matter, which is the dust, and carbon monoxide, which is what's in, this, in the burning products. Now, you can't see carbon monoxide, but we've got our hazardous materials experts out there and scientific officers monitoring the outfall of the carbon monoxide. We've had no triggers on the carbon monoxide level, so we're comfortable with that. It's really around the dust and the particulate that you're experiencing. This is Niall Finnegan from the Environmental Protection Agency. Thank you and um, good morning, uh, everybody. Uh, first and foremost, I'd like to echo uh, Ken's um, opening comments. Our primary concern is your safety and getting you back to your normal lifestyles as quickly as possible. I'd also like to apologise for the inconvenience that you faced last night being moved out of your homes. That's a very stressful thing and it's a decision that's not taken lightly. Um, that's why we're prioritising our efforts at this site. We have our staff on place. We have some new capabilities which I can talk to which are there with the primary interest of making sure that we are giving the incident controller the best advice that we can so that they can make decisions which affect your personal safety. If I probably um, talk to three things, the first is what we're doing around this incident as we're speaking. Um, what can be done at this site in the short to medium term, in my view, and then what's happening in a longer term view to make sure that communities aren't impacted like this um, into the future. So as the fire is burning, our role is to support the incident controller in two ways. One is around the management of firefighting water. There's a lot of water being used, there's been foams used to suppress the fire. That water will find its way into sewers and into creeks, so we work with Melbourne Water, Yarra Valley Water, to make sure that those things are being done appropriately with limited impact or minimal impact on the environment and human health. Secondly, our role is to provide air monitoring advice and forecasting advice to the, to the MFB and indeed the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, we have recently employed a new chief environmental scientist. This is a new capacity and capability for EPA. In the medium term, um, it's known that we, with Council and MFB, were to visit that site yesterday morning because we have a collective concern about how that site has been managed. The site is not uh, subject to EPA legislation in terms of licensing or workers' approval. It's uh, permitted by Council. They do uh, resource recovery recycling um, for a range of councils across Melbourne. And the purpose of yesterday's visit was to see how fire risk was being managed on that site and ultimately to give advice to a tool which is called a fire prevention notice on how that site needed to manage its fire risks so that this event, this type of event, shouldn't occur. And the irony is probably not lost on you of all people um, as to the timing of that. So the only thing I can say to that, I wish we'd been uh, able to foresee this quicker and been able to move quicker. But um, 
we were working together in a partnership approach and um, we see the, the consequences of that. Into the longer term, there will be changes to regulations and changes to the law. There is a bill before Parliament as we speak with a second one to go before Parliament later this year where the government will work um, give EPA new powers so that we can control these type of sites in a different way so that their obligation is on people that they manage their sites so that we, so that we don't have this type of consequence which impacts on, on your life. All right, Coolaroo. Uh, sorry, uh, Coolaroo, yeah. Sorry mm-hmm. about the equality of that. Uncertain about why that happened, but uh, it gives you the information. It, uh, the big fires out at Coolaroo, the recycle plant, obviously was already in the sights of... Uh, uh, authorities, but mm. uh, wasn't uh, dealt with soon enough. Uh, if you are from around there, they reckon that it's still it's still burning. Of course, uh, it the smoke uh, may impact Sydney Road, Hume Highway. So, uh, advice is not to hang Stay around inside. there. Stay inside. Stay inside. Shut the windows. Shut the windows. Turn off the coolers and the heaters. That's right. And the relief centre at Broadmeadows Aquatic and Leisure Centre, forty one to eighty five. Gender and Way Broadmeadows is the place. And I don't believe that you have to have been evacuated to go there. You can choose to go there. Yeah, you can choose to go there. You're on uh, Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. We're going to be talking to Fred Fiontes about what is happening in Venezuela. Hi, I'm... No, I didn't do testing. Oh, okay. Testing, <laughs> testing. Okay. Hi, I'm Susanna Espy. And I'm Ida. And you're listening to 3C... <laughs> G'day, Fred. How are you? Oh, good morning. All good, thank you. Yeah. Good morning, Fred. Now, Fred, we don't know about Venezuela. We hear... we All we get is dribs and drabs coming out of the mainstream media about Venezuela. And, uh, I've, and there was actually quite offensive report on... Uh, I think it was one of foreign correspondent that implied that everything that was happening in Venezuela was actually down to a left-wing government and its inability to govern. What's your take on it? Yes, well, look, the the reality is that while there's been a lot of media focus on Venezuela, essentially since uh, April, where we've seen the latest range of uh, street protests that have been occurring against the government of, of Nicolas Maduro. Uh, the the real rea- the reality is that in order to understand what is going on today is to look at a whole history of attempts to destabilise and overthrow uh, first the government of Hugo Chavez, who was elected in 1998, uh, who during his time in government faced a, an, a, an a coup attempt, well, a coup attempt that was successful for 47 hours until the people came back out onto the streets and said we will not tolerate a coup government and put him back into power, where we saw an attempt by the opposition to shut down the oil industry. In fact, they achieved that for two months, uh, meaning the economy shrank by 25% in, that, in, the, in the space of two months because of the huge economic damage that was done to the country. And repeated attempts uh, to electorally uh, uh, unseat Hugo Chavez, all of which were unsuccessful. Um, and now we see a continuation, uh, or is anything, an intensification of that against Nicolas Maduro, uh, who was elected, won an election in 2012, one that was immediately not recognised by the opposition and who called on their op- on their supporters to go out to the streets. At that time, about a dozen people were killed as a result of the violent protest. In 2014, they did the same again, calling on their uh, supporters out onto the streets, uh, leaving in the wake some 43 dead. Uh, and today... 
we see, as I said, the, the, the latest uh, but perhaps the most dangerous phase of, the, of an opposition campaign uh, against a, a democratically elected government. Who are these opposition? Well, look, the large part of the opposition, when I talk about the opposition, I, I, I mean the leaders of, of the protest movement. Of course, the, the, the composition of those who may be on the streets uh, will vary, um, although it, it is worth noting that the hotspots of protest uh, in Venezuela have tended to be the, the more upper and, uh, and middle-class uh, suburbs. Uh, so we're not seeing the sort of poor neighbourhoods as the empty centres of these protests, uh, much like we did see in the 80s and 90s when under neoliberalism there was, you know, crushing poverty sort of uh, and huge wage cuts meant that the poor were, you know, essentially out on the streets every day protesting against uh, neoliberal policies. Today, these protests are not exclusively but in large part limited to, to these sort of opposition areas which are mainly middle class, upper class. Uh, but when we, when we look at the opposition leaders, uh, many of them are essentially the same politicians who were in power uh, back in the 80s, back in the 90s, uh, who implemented these austerity measures uh, that very much gave, gave birth to, to the movement supporting Chavez, a movement that was in opposition uh, to policies that continually saw Venezuela's oil wealth being taken out of the country while people at home uh, continue to live in, in, in absurd levels of, of poverty. Um, so it's this old political class, um, and together with the economic powers in the country, who feel that they've lost their privileges, feel that they've lost their power, uh, and feel that they rightfully are the ones that should be governing in Venezuela, who today are very much involved in, in, these, in these protest movements. Uh, so yeah, many of the key figures, whether you talk about uh, Enrique Capriles or whether you talk about the, the president of, of the National Assembly, which is an opposition uh, deputy, are all people who have been involved in politics well um, from, from you know, time before Chavez um, and, and continue to, to fight to, re- to return to their positions of power. Well, it's interesting, the, uh, that report that they did on, I think it was, uh, I mean, maybe I'm maligning them, I think it was Foreign Correspondent, I think it was an ABC program, one of the, where yep. they go around the world, you probably saw it, where uh, the fellow just unrelentingly uh, discussed issues with foreign, uh, with uh, opposition, one opposition academic, and uh, then un- uh, underlined the, f- the notion that uh, there weren't uh, any proper products for people to uh, sustain their, their lo- to, to sustain themselves, and that uh, this, this government was basically crippling the country. Uh, the fact that we're only getting those messages uh, on the mainstream and completely a thorough. Uh, assassination, as you say, of the democratically elected government. This points to outside uh, support for these opposition leaders, it seems to me. Mm, That's just what I was going to ask. What is the involvement of foreign governments? Yeah, look, the US for a long time now, um, and this is what we know openly, i.e. this is what's on there, their budget papers on, on their books in terms of money that they spend in aid and funding to organisations overseas. It's estimated that essentially since about 2009 uh, up until 2015, sorry, 2016, so over the last five years, they've spent some $50 million funding different types of opposition organisations, whether that be directly funding or giving money to opposition parties or whether that be to more 
sort of NGO organisations, but ones that have clearly taken a, an, an oppositional line. I think that's one level of international support that we see. A second level of international support that we see is the, the very clear uh, intromission into domestic affairs being taken by a range of uh, governments uh, and regional organisations, in particular the organisations of American states. So we have the Secretary-General of the Organisations of American State who has essentially used his position now for the last at least a year to just full-time campaign um, against Venezuela. So, you know, if, if, if Nicolas Maduro sneezes, he raises it in the Organisation of American State. Uh, yet yet we see the, the complete hypocrisy of his position that when the, old, the OAS recently met in Mexico and the, the parents of the 43 disappeared students uh, mm. were killed, essentially, uh, by police action. Uh, he refused to even put that on the agenda or to meet with any of the family. Uh, in, in Brazil, in Brazil, we just have the situation where a judge uh, has just sentenced the former president, Lula da Silva, to nine years jail on mm. the most flimsiest of pretexts, and yet we see that this judge is also the one who's be running in the elections against Lula next year and nothing mentioned. So we see the diplomatic support as well that's really trying to isolate and demonise the the Venezuelan government and and sort of giving giving air to the opposition because I think the opposition realise that inside the country they don't have the necessary political weight to be able to restore power. They know that as desperately as they've tried since April, they have not been able to either do one of two things that they would need to do to bring down Maduro. The first is to crack the military to get an important section of the military on its side. It has not been able to do that as yet. The second would be to win significant support amongst the poor poor sectors, which would definitely, if they achieved that, would bring down the, the Maduro government. They haven't been able to do it, so they hope to change that balance of forces through the diplomatic support. Uh, and who, who knows who could even rule out uh, military support um, if, if the situation uh, degenerated further, because I, I certainly fear that, you know, a case of, of civil war uh, or certainly much, much greater levels of violence than we're already seeing uh, could be on the horizon for Venezuela if some, some sort of solution is not found to the current crisis. So they're basically saying that uh, they refuse that, that particular political class, and I presume they're backers because it's quite clear that there are... Uh, that they refuse to have a government... That has they see it so as so threatening to the uh, neoliberal or capitalist system to have a socialist government. Yeah, yes, well, and, and and what we have is a situation where this weekend um, they they are organising uh, what they call a, to be a plebiscite, um, uh, which is essentially a, a vote. Uh, that they hope will give them some kind of a, a, a mandate. Obviously, it won't be a, a, an actual electoral mandate because it's not an official referendum. It's just saying that the opposition are organising. But they hope to use the vote in this referendum to justify their attempts to set up a parallel government. I mean, this is essentially what wow. their referendum is asking for. Their, their referendum has three questions. It essentially says, the first question is that we reject the constituent assembly that the government has convoked for the end of this month. So in two weeks' time... Venezuelans will go to an actual vote, and that's to elect people to a constituent assembly as part of opening up a national dialogue uh, to see how a new consensus can be built amongst the people in the form of fixing up the problems that are in the constitution, helping to deal with some of these uh, economic issues that Venezuela is confronting. Because I, I don't want to minimise the seriousness of the economic problems. 
question is who's behind it and how do we resolve them. The second, the second question is basically calling on the army to establish to uh, defend the existing constitutional order in a context where the opposition have said that the government uh, has uh, Maduro has broken the constitutional order. Uh, so essentially, a, a call for the military to carry out a coup. Uh, and the third one to say that a new national unity government should be set up to pave the way for new transparent elections at, at all levels of government. Um, so of course, this is what they hope is to to give some kind of a a pretext of a democratic cover to what they are aiming to do is essentially set up a parallel government. Um, we'll see all of this unfold over the next few days, essentially, and and an intensification as the other election, the election being convoked by the government, uh, approaches at, at, at the end of this month as well, which the opposition has said that, that there's no way that this will go ahead. And even US, US Senator Marco Rubio, who's been a one of the most vocal supporters of the Venezuelan opposition has already said that you know Venezuela will face crippling sanctions uh, if, if it tries to hold a democratic election. Uh, these are the people that call Venezuela a dictatorship, but are now threatening that if it dares to hold an election. Oh, technocrats. Um, I was wondering uh, what was going on. I suppose on the other side, the left side, uh, because I've heard that some uh, forces in the left criticise uh, the government for accommodating to the right too much um, and also for not implementing some of the uh, nationalisations and so on of the economy that might put uh, sections of the economy in the workers' hands. But I, um, I've only heard a little bit, a little bit about this. Uh, would you be able to speak to that? Yeah, I think I think this is an important point because very often um, what's left out of the discussion on in Venezuela uh, is the the important discussions and debates and vitality uh, of the movement that supports the government. And when I say supports the government, it does not mean that it's a, it's an uh, an uncritical support uh, or or a support that will just you know essentially accept anything that the government does. But the reality is that. You know, today the, the biggest political force, individual political force in the country is the is the Socialist Party of, of Venezuela. Now, the opposition may, uh, you know, be able to claim that polls show that, and you know, the, that the opposition are the majority, but they're fragmented into many, many different parties. Uh, whereas the, the Socialist Party uh, is by far the the, the most supported uh, political party, and, and these this base of the the, the, the Socialist Party. Uh, the, the main supporters of the government, not the only ones. There are other smaller parties that, that have uh, been in alliance with, with the Socialist Party for, for many years now, uh, has constantly uh, been debating and discussing the way forward. And if anything, that discussion has increased following the, the, the death of Hugo Chavez in, in 2012 and the direction that the, the process has been going. Uh, since that time, we had a, 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 a big opening up of discussions on some of these questions that you've just raised there is in terms of how do we resolve the very serious economic problems um, that, this, that the country is facing at the moment? And I would say you could broadly categorise uh, three, three positions um, that all, all, all in one way or another have uh, exist within the government and within government supporters, uh, but that are currently being debated. I think the, the first one is probably the one that Maduro has been pursuing, which is a, a constant attempt to call uh, for the business sector sit, to sit down and negotiate the government to try and come up with a common strategy of getting out of out of this situation, um, critics of that will argue. Well, he's done that and, and it's failed. The other you know, business sector clearly doesn't want to work with him. Clearly wants wants to get rid of him. Others others would say, well, he you know he has to at least be attempting to reach out to these sectors. He can't be seen to be the one that's refusing dialogue 
in the context of such you know severe polarization and political crisis. These critics would generally argue, and they say that look, the reality is that the business sector does not want to help you out. The business sector wants to bring down your government. Yeah. So, so what's the second? And, what's the second option then? Yeah. So firm firm measures basically against it, against this business class, and they largely revolve, revolve around uh, nationalising of the banking sector. Um, given the role the banking sector has been playing in currency speculation, uh, in undermining gov- um, government programs, um, and also greater control over over foreign trade, um, so that it's not left up to private business to import and uh, import produce. Uh, given that we've seen the massive shortages that are occurring, but rather the government directly. Um, oh, well, this, over, it's kind of interesting because uh, uh, this is all predicated on the fact that um, uh, the. Uh, uh, barrel price of oil, which is the was the major. Is, am I correct in saying this that uh, the uh, uh, the oil barrel barrel price for oil went down dramatically, halved or something? And this was the one the the uh, product that uh, Venezuela had a lot of. Uh, mm. can, is it possible, even if there is this major change for the right wing to actually come up with the goods? Why, why would they magically be able to come up with the goods anyway? Well, yes, exactly, because while, while there's a lot of attention paid to the problems in Venezuela, almost no scrutiny is given to what the opposition plans to do to, to resolve this problem. And as you said, one important factor of the current situation is the drop in oil prices that were over $100 you know, yeah, about huge. five years ago um, and is now in, you know, in the 40s. Um, and interestingly enough, you... this affects all of the U.S.'s major uh, areas of crisis, you know, like Iran and <laughs> all of them. Yes. Anyway, yeah. go on. Well, look, yeah, look it, it's not the first time that Venezuela has faced you know, a similar problem in declining oil prices. In fact, from, throughout most of the late 70s and early 80s, Venezuela was, was totally you know, in a situation where declining oil prices and hyperinflation, inflation in three-digit figures, the kind of things we oh hear about God. today yeah. were happening in, 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 in Venezuela back then. The difference is that the Maduro government today has been trying its best to maintain the level of social spending it, it is, it is, uh, its government has done for the last few years. When the opposition were back in power in the late, in the, in the, uh, late 80s and early, in the 80s and 90s, and what, it, what we essentially saw was a dramatic slashing of the government budget. Um, so what it meant was healthcare, you know, no longer available to people. Uh, education, you know, totally decimated. Uh, people's ordinary wages, the wages that people were taking home from the late 70s to the late 90s, so in the spirit of, of 20 years, actually decreased by more than half. So imagine earning less than wow. half of what you earned 20 years ago. Oh. Um, that's what happened to ordinary people's wages in Venezuela. So that's how... That's how they would like to resolve this crisis, by making ordinary people pay. And I think that's why, even despite all the problems, even despite all the criticisms that ordinary people, poor people may have in Venezuela, I think this is why many of them are very sceptical of these opposition protests, um, because they know what these people did the last time they were in power, and they know that if they do get back into power, it'll be, all, it'll be, the, it'll be the poor of Venezuela who will be paying the price for the current crisis. Um, so I think that, that that's really why we don't see them out on the streets today, even though many of them are harshly critical of, of the current situation. Well, it's hard. And, and it's really hard. want... Food on the table. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. they want people to win. Yeah. They, I think they want the um, opposition forces to be defeated. So you have, you know, criticisms aimed at um, how you win. Yeah. Mm, exactly. 
Fred, thanks very much for talking to us about this. I've been dying to find out more about this because I knew there was a rat. There was a rat. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, that, that, that's fine. And I, I hope I, I'm not uh, abusing my, my situation, but I, I did just want to mention at the end of this month, I'll be, uh, I'll be down in Melbourne actually speaking about Venezuela uh, together with a Venezuelan journalist uh, who'll be speaking from, from Venezuela um, about the situation. So people are obviously welcome to find out more information as well at, at the public meeting. How would they do that? Uh, well, look, the public meeting is on Saturday, uh, the 29th of July, I think is the right date. It's definitely the Saturday, uh, yep. the last Saturday of the month, at 2pm at yep. the Multicultural Hub, uh, just there, I think it's in Elizabeth Street. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, that's right. Good. Okay, we'll be there. We'll, Fantastic. We w- we'll meet you there. Thanks, Fred. Fantastic. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. <laughs> Yarra City Council present Leaps and Bounds Music Festival 2017 from the 13th to the 23rd of July. Celebrating 40 years since Melbourne's first punk gig, Bakehouse hosts Why Punk discussing its existence. Catch the All Ages shows featuring Philly and Boessa at the Turn Up or Ms Risk for Groovers in the High Tea. Head to bar open for a show every night of the festival or catch the smooth grooves of the meltdown. For participating venues and tickets, visit leapsandboundsmusicfestival.com. A 3CR supporter. A new illustrated book by Alina and Bruce MacDonald stars our beloved comrade Bill Della as the protagonist in a journey that stems from Ballarat to Humpty Doo and features all the lefty issues that were dear to Bill's big heart. Gracia has a few precious copies of this beautiful book for sale for $20 plus $5 postage. All proceeds will go to the Solidarity Breakfast Program's Radiothon Fund. You can buy it online at the 3CR shop. Go to the 3CR website... 3cr.org.au or pick up your copy at the station. Yes, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim and we've got Lou Wheeler on the line. There go for pensioners. G'day Lou, how are you? I'm good, Annie, yourself? I'm good. I'm glad to hear your voice. Good morning, Kim. Thank you. <laughs> Just so you know, you know, no, you won't be rushed. Um, well, Kim, you, you can kick off. Yeah, so um, I was just, we're wondering about this meeting that you're having um, this afternoon. What are the main talking points that you want to discuss there? Well, it's actually a community meeting, so it's going to be really giving the uh, public housing tenants themselves um, an opportunity to raise their concerns and talk about what they want as distinct from what the state government says they want. And uh, um, our understanding of the situation is that these two are rather uh, miles apart. Yeah. So um, the speakers that are coming along, of course, are um, Sue Boland from um, Moreland Council and the Moreland Council have supported uh, the need to, and call for more public housing, not more other types of affordable housing. Um, and that's really at the nub of what's going on here. The government has released a program called um, Homes for Victorians. Um, and in that, it's pretty clear that what they're really talking about is 
providing affordable housing options um, and transferring a lot of public housing properties onto into the um, what's called the community housing sector. And that comes along with very different rights and obligations than uh, public housing tenants' um, obligations and regulations and the rights of tenants. So it's a very big issue. Um, and Could you perhaps, I know that um, probably a lot of 3CR listeners do know the difference between public housing and community housing, but can you explain some of the differences in tenants' rights um, and also, I mean, they call it affordable housing, but it seems like they're only after a certain type of person. In fact, that's part of the letter you wrote to uh, to uh, Mr Andrews, part of uh, Fair Go for Pensioners' actual uh, uh, presentation to the government, uh, asking, telling, asking them to uh, be a bit clearer in their language. Mm, that's exactly right, and they, uh, it's really interesting because in in their actual document called Homes for for Victorians, they are quite clear, and um, their definition of public housing is housing owned and managed by the director of housing. The government provides public housing to eligible disadvantaged Victorians, including to eligible disadvantaged Victorians. Um, and, you know, it can be people, um, unemployed migrant families, um, those with health um, issues or those, um, um, you know, with disabilities. So it's owned and managed. That's the point. And the model for um, a cap on income is that's 25% of your income. And if your circumstances change, you can, in fact, say you become unemployed, then your income can be adjusted down to take into account the fact that you may now be earning um, a lot less income. In terms of community housing, this is housing that can be either owned or managed by community housing agencies for low-income people including those who would be eligible for public housing, the community housing sector itself is regulated by government. One of the key differences, and there's a, uh, quite significant differences, but one of the key ones is the cap on rent in public housing is 25%, as I said. In community housing, it's 80% of your income. It's a... Right? Now, the community housing sector at the moment, the non-government community housing sector, does not charge that. It charges mostly the 30 or 35%, still higher than public housing. Well, you know, that's but, actually a bit fascinating too because when they use percentages, it's when you say clearly it's 25% of your income, that's, that's fine. But when they say it's 25% of your income but you have to be earning... Uh, a certain amount. So, if say for example, if That's you're right. if you're in a community housing place, you have to be earning say twenty five thousand dollars, which then they can comfortably say we're only going to take forty percent of your income. But if you don't earn twenty five thousand dollars, then you can't come and live here. I think another problem with that thirty percent is that um, isn't that the threshold for technically being in housing stress? Thirty percent of your Income. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think the point that Annie's made is is the point, uh, uh, which we've been pressing them on and getting, you know, very little uh, <laughs> clear well, information. I think they're so clever, from. basically. Well, that's right. Well, and, and I think the point of all of this is 
Um, I mean, that's one way to, um, you know, um, an informal, well, it's not so informal, really, mm-hmm. is it? The eligibility criteria of getting into these properties. But we've got, it's really important to understand there's an umbrella term called social housing. And what's meant by that is you've got both community housing under it and public housing. Now, while the government in in this particular document makes the distinction between the two types of housing clear, when you come to talk with them and in some of their other documents, they slide between the two. It's an interchangeable term. So what you're never sure of when you're asking, well, how much public housing you know, what what stock's going to increase with this so-called public housing renewal program, then they start talking about social housing. So it slips between the two and you never get an answer to that question. And one of the concerns um, of the meeting today will be trying to um, get some information out to the public housing tenants about the fact that, look, some of these issues remain very unclear um, and and you're, the, ju- you're actually pointing out something very important, even in that statement, that the people oh, who yes. are in public housing do not even know what the government intends for them. Well, it's all unclear. Like the government will tell you they've been having consultations. consultations. They've contracted those consultations <laughs> out to people that we say really don't know what they're talking about because when we go on to the estates and Fair Go for Pension is um, is delighted to be supporting Friends of Public Housing Victoria who have you know, been organising um, meetings with the tenants to find out what their views really are um, as distinct from what the government is saying it is um, and we're happy to support that um, and when we've been out on the estates with them like People are really totally um, misinformed about what's going on. Rumour is right. Um, they haven't put the, inf- the written information in languages that people can understand. Oh, no. like we've, got, we've got public um, housing tenants who are multilingual. They, they speak four languages. One of them doesn't happen to be English. Yeah. Um, and and so also, you if you get... can speak it, it's not the same as being able to read it. Well, that's exactly right. Um, and we haven't had interpreters there. They um, they didn't hire um, professional interpreters. They apparently ran around wow. and found, you know, somebody that they thought Africa was just one nation <gasps> and got somebody who spoke one of the languages when, in fact, the group that we were talking to, just the one group we were talking to, there were four African nation languages represented in that particular group of people, right? Um, and so even the people that went to the meeting were totally frustrated because, um, you know, there was no one there to tell them what was going on. Oh, that's outrageous. Um, and more than that, the, um, of course, it was in English, the, uh, the consultation. Mm, so it's really difficult. And um, the government seemed to be completely unaware of the level of fear that this has generated. Now, um, in well, one you're of very the kind, we, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the um, one of the groups we went to the wo- a woman has been on an estate for over forty years. Oh. She's lost her husband and son in the last year, and now she's going to be tossed out of her public housing, a home that she's lived in, a home tossed out after forty years. 
Now and, that, and it, that that takes us to another issue, right? Which you point out, you guys does. point out to in your letter uh, when you want clarifications, uh, is that the government just blithely says, and this is uh, folly. He says he's quoted as saying, "Oh, they'll all we'll all find places for all these people, right? Uh, yes. Or do they have a right to go back to their homes?" <laughs> well. Well, we can't answer that, and they didn't answer it. And we're, um, you know, we're getting trying to get a, now a, a meeting with the premier to put this question directly to him because we're. Uh, they'll tell you two things. We were told two things at the meeting that we had. It was with the advisor, uh, Minister Foley's advisor, on it. Um, and on the one hand, they tell you yes, 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 they'll they'll have the right to come back. And on the other hand, they tell you no, no, people are going to be reassessed. That's one thing. And secondly. Um, the start-ups that are going to be demolished and new um, buildings, um, you know, created, constructed, um, are only going to be one and two bedrooms. So what happens mm-hmm. to people who have got, you know, the need for three and four bedroom properties? And where are they going? We don't know. They don't tell us. What's the time frame on this? We do know that people are starting to get letters telling them they have to be out by the end of the year, but nobody knows where they're going. And... Um, the estates that we've been on, they have. They're not without their challenges. However, they have strong communities. They have community gardens. They have people that are really working together. Um, and these communities are just going to be completely broken down. Like their kids go to school locally. There's churches uh, nearby. Yeah, but Lou, mar- but Lou, you're just complaining. I mean, uh, this will be... Uh uh, cost neutral for the government uh, if they give it over to pri- you know public property over to private hands. We're, we're going to get a, a bonanza out of this. Oh, aren't we? Yes, and and our public assets are going to be gone forever. Never get them back. Um, and where are the people going to go? Are they just well, are we really literally going to toss people out on the street? Literally, I mean, yeah. because that's that's literally what we're doing. And it's uh, really, it's just quite, it's so shameful. And we really need a lot of people to rally and get to this meeting today to let the government know it is not good enough. And they have to reverse their decision. One of the decisions they've made and said they're sticking by, at least that's what they told us in the meeting, they're going to transfer 4,000 um, public housing dwellings, properties over to a community housing um, agency. Now, these are private agencies, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And they just said, we say, reverse that decision. We do not. And and they tell you, oh, it's all right. They're just going to manage it. We're not giving them the titles. Well, there's been other information we've had, and we can't verify this at the moment because, you know, a lot of the documents we're being told are commercial inconfidence, so we can't oh, get That's them. another interesting thing, isn't oh. it? Co- commercial inconfidence. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, you know, every which way they just go, sorry. Um, they're saying that 12, there's been a demand to have 12,000 titles, public housing titles transferred to the community housing sector. Now, we're not saying at the moment that the government's prepared to do that. What the government is saying, they're only prepared to transfer the management of 4,000 properties. We say that's the first step to this privatisation, the public-private partnership. And we know how well these public-private partnerships work in people's favours, don't we? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Actually, it doesn't stack up financially either, does it, really? No, well, well, it does if you're a, a marketeer and you're a 
uh, property developer. Oh, sorry, I was uh, I was uh, making no, I was making the uh, <laughs> assumption that we were on our side, on the public <laughs> side. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, no, I mean it's not. Um, you know, there's uh, there's no way that this is going to be in the interest of public housing tenants. Now, um, of course, the uh, the the the, uh, the idea of getting a refurbished um, or a new unit is very attractive. However, what we're also told on one of the estates, the refurbishments have already been underway. Right, yeah. and that's what the tenants themselves want. They want to stay where they are. They want their units updated, right? Yeah. Um, and apparently, on this estate, these up these refurbished uh, units will be part of the ones that will get demolished. Wow. I mean, it's it's a madness, a madness. Well, um, and yeah. for well, I think that, I think there's another word for it. it starts with C. Greed. <laughs> oh, what? you you went for G. I went for C. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Capitalism. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I actually, I'm, I'm crueler. I go for a, a CU word. But anyway. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> but we're not going to well, say I mean, it. I'd, we're not going to say it. <laughs> no, just, I was just thinking it. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's it, not I so. Mean, you know, for the public tenants themselves, it's just so cruel. And fair go for pensioners really wants to... Because um, actually, applaud. fair go for pensioners. I mean, I know that uh, fair go for pensioners is not just a rallying point for people who are older, but uh, but uh, single women and older women mm. are particularly Absolutely. being targeted by the fact that there are no proper pu- pu- public housing. But you see, when you say disadvantage, you know, people have this idea in their head that uh, I mean, this it's this idea that people uh, need require charity, but actually, this is a social issue. The, the society is required. You're only as strong as your weakest link. That's exactly right, and it's a human rights issue, as yeah. you're saying. Housing, shelter. You know, we need shelter. Everybody does. Yeah. And um, the other horrible part about this is the millions of dollars that will be even in this stage one, and of course, there will be a stage two further on. Um, so all this money, all these public assets are going to be moved um, and still we have so many people. At the moment we've got um, 56,000, if you include 22,000 homeless Victorians plus um, over 33,000 on the Victorian public waiting lists uh, who are needing housing now. And even with all this money, at the end of this stage one apparently, from what we can find out, the maximum amount of dwellings that will be um, provided will be 2,200, and they're saying they're only going to be one and two bedroom. So I don't know um, what your sums are like, but, I mean, there's no way you're going to be even housing anywhere near that amount of people. Tell our listeners about the meeting again. What's the time? Where is it? It's 2 o'clock. Walk, run, ride your bike, get there. It's at the Richard Lynch Senior Citizen Centre, 27 Peacock Street, Brunswick West. It's off Albion Street and it starts at 2 o'clock and it's hosted by Friends of Public Housing Victoria, supported by Fair Go for Pensioners and Homeless Persons Union. Thanks, Lou. Thank you. Terrific. Thank you, Annie. A weak solidarity bricky team listener when some myopic souls might think true blue Aussie's desire to get into the space race spend trillions when governments tell us we must slash spending on the basics taxes are raised for if we wish to protect the greatest little economic order of them all is a wasteful, unnecessary ambition.
Well, the week that was is here to say it's one of the smartest, most brilliant, far-sighted plans we've heard in eons. What better long-term value than finding another planet out there somewhere we can inhabit given the terminal diagnosis thanks to the way we're treating the one we've got? Just hope if there's life there they know how to treat climate refugees, although we could just declare the new planet Terra Nullius and tell them they don't exist. Meanwhile, still on planet Earth, the sundry Trublowazi governments got together to discuss its destruction, armed with the recommendations of the National Climate Change's CRAPCON mission, chaired by former big supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses, supported by the invaluable inputs of Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo Barnacle, Corey St. Bernardi, George Christian Man and a Woman Family Son, Erica Betts on the bosses and like-minded decision makers on our behalf. While the Minister for Fossils, Josh Fry Dem Icebergs, complained when asked whether the government would adopt a clean energy target, the only recommendation of the Finn Kill the Planet report not adopted. We've only had the report for a month or two. We can't rush into these decisions without proper consideration. Uh, but, but you adopted the other recommendations day one. Without proper consideration by Tiny's Climate Change's crap commission, which determines our progressive energy policy, and I believe they are very close to recommending coal, good clean coal, as the clean energy solution. So... Bring on the space race. Barnacle. Reported last week, Barnacle kicked off day one as acting big supremo, announcing we could place trade bans on China over evil North Korea, leading those who really matter in the caring business class party and its party, well, the current governing one of its parties, scampering desperately. Barnacle didn't mean we could place trade bans on China over evil North Korea when he said we could place trade bans on China over evil North Korea, confirming our concerns about Barnacle. And this week, obviously obsessed by North Korea, he said we must keep the train killer invasion option on the table. But thus far, his minders haven't clarified for us whether that means we must keep the train killer invasion option on the table or not. On train killer merchandise, Peace in Asia does have a chance with that exciting news for all peace lovers. Good, good, peace-loving Zion has flogged trillions of train killer merchandise to India so India can keep the peace by not using the trillions it spends. And on Zion, poor beleaguered threatened Zion, a blast from the past in the Lord Rupert True Blue Aussie Tradian with the big red True Blue Aussie up the top. Peter Baldwin, real name, former Socialist Party Federal Minister whom I'd forgotten existed, thus real name, no one would know who he is, attacking irresponsibles in the New South Wales Socialist Party for wanting it to recognise a Palestinian state. Evil, evil, warmongering Palestine, a warmonger which doesn't exist, a non-country, non-people. But Baldwin says the perfidious who want to recognise the unrecognisable are influenced by the ethnic component of certain key seats, as if a political party would let such matters influence it. But the interesting key to his argument is that a so-called non-people Palestinian state based on the West Bank and Gaza could never 
be a real state, real country under the UN of the US of the UN of the world definition of a viable state. Yet, that is just the solution his great peace love and idol Zion proposes. And for the record, opposes at the same time. You can have a country, but it can't be a country. Baldwin points out there could be peace tomorrow between Zion and the non-state Palestinian non-people if it wasn't for the non-state Palestinian non-people. Pete's article reflected the sensible centre balance for which Lord Rupert's trillion with the big red true blue Aussie is so renowned. Bringing us to, for once, we have to praise a caring business class party ex-poly, now party supremo Nick Grinnewal exploiting. Interviewed about big supremo Malcolm Tunnerbull's speech, eulogising that sensible centre. Grinnewal exploiting said the best leaders represented the sensible centre, running off a list of great caring business class party leaders like the little bald-headed bloke, and even Socialist Party leaders. For instance, no one could accuse former great and beloved Big Supremo Nuclear Hawk himself of being a lefty, a socialist. And for once, we can only agree with Nick. No one could accuse. Then again, it shows how far the not-so-sensible centre has moved when Pig Eye and Bob is the exemplar of progressive politics. One of my father's regular phrases was, Menzies will grind the workers into the dust. But then all the indications point to that being the very objective of the sensible centre. Now back to Lord Rupert, this time he's whopping sin. Last week we praised it for bringing us the big news, entire front page to a thug thumping someone in a suburban footy match and a double page colour spread with lots of pickies, followed up with more spreads and pickies ever since, a 22-year-old tennis player who spent the night at a Soho nightclub with girls, a brat whom most people quite rightly can't stand. Well, this week, that other great true blue Aussie tennis brat, who most people quite rightly can't stand, even upset his sponsors, including his racket sponsor, Head. Now, I'd never heard of Head Rackets before they dumped him, but our very, very, very bad joke of all out of all this is that he used to turn up with a case of heads, but now he's just a head case. <laughs> Warned you, told you, it was bad. Bad, very bad. These fake news attacks on poor U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trample the poor, Donald's eponymous son, nothing if not all modesty, the old Donald, faced a probing interview on Lord Rupert's objective medium, Fox, tell him what Lord Rupert wants him to think, to respond to these fake news stories that talking to a Russian lawyer hoping to get the dirt on his dad's opponent, was somehow talking to a Russian lawyer, hoping to get the dirt on his dad's opponent, explaining that when he said he hadn't spoken to a Russian, he really and truly believed he hadn't spoken to a Russian. And then when he said he may have spoken to a Russian whom he didn't know was a Russian, he really and truly believed he may have spoken to a Russian whom he didn't know was a Russian. And then when these emails between the eponymous son and a go-between and a Russian lawyer surfaced, he underwent a miraculous recovery of memory. And anyway, the Russian lawyer had no dirt to give him. Bitch! And Donald, Big Donald, said his son... Well, first, let's make it clear. Big Donald had no...
no idea any of this was going on. No idea at all. Big Donald said his son was honourable, and the whole issue was the biggest witch hunt ever, ever, in the history of the human race, presumably dwarfing the Inquisition, for instance. And were Arthur Miller alive, he could pen a new play about a real witch hunt, the real crucible. And Big Donald said his honourable offspring had answered every question put to him by Lord Rupert's probing inquisitor. If such friendly puff could qualify as questions, because Lord Rupert and his lackeys always want only the truth and nothing but the truth. So I think we can safely say that matter's been laid to rest. Don't expect we'll hear much of that again. Well, 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 there is a congressional hearing, but what can they ask him that Lord Rupert's loyal loyal lackey didn't ask, other than real questions? And the no-proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people have been whooping it up and popping the corks on Manus and Nauru at this exciting news. Troubadour was he looked certain to get on the UN of Human Rights Committee, showing how effective that little body is. Now, we started with the exciting news. We're investing in finding a new planet to replace the one we've stuffed up. But the end of the planet is nothing compared to the real cause of the end of the world as we know it. Moves to amalgamate the evil construction union, the lawless CFMEU, and the evil lawless maritime union, and the clothing and textiles union, which attempts to interfere in the win-win relationship between respectable labels, and the women who like to do a little bit of work at home, say 22 or 23 hours a day, to bring in an even littler bit of extra money. Bloody interfering union where it has no right to interfere. Win-win caring employer outworker relationships. No lesser responsible body than the True Blue Aussie Mines and Metals Profits Association has warned us of the pending doom, the end of the world as we know it. So finally, if these evil bodies do amalgamate, it will, direct quote, no embellishment, give the militant CFMEU and MUA greater capacity to inflict economic damage. There is no doubt that the stability of the supply chain from pit to port is at risk. Can anyone imagine a greater threat to humanity than risking the supply chain from pit to port? Tiny's National Climate Change's CRAPCON mission and climate change itself pale against such a threat. If pale not be an oxymoron in the circumstances. Good morning. Smith Street Dreaming has become one of the area's most anticipated street festivals, featuring Pigeon Jarra Man, Frank Yammer, Soul Diva Emma Donovan, Hip Hoppers Young Warriors, Indigenous Hip Hop Projects Wurundjeri Dance Group Jindy Warraback, MC Shelley Ware from the Mangrook Footy Show and much more. Smith Street Dreaming on the corner of Smith and Stanley Streets, Collingwood, Saturday the 22nd of July, 1 till 5pm. Smith Street Dreaming. One street, many mobs, one community. This is an alcohol and drug-free event. A 3CR supporter. Put it on your calendar. Great lineup. Beautiful, that song. Yeah, just great. Frank Gammer is the man. And on the line, we've got uh, Don Sutherland. G'day, how are you, Don? Uh, hello, Annie. And I believe Kim's sitting there with you. And g'day, Yes, good morning. Yeah, that's how great. Are you all? Yeah, we're good. We're good. Um, it's uh, well, well, 
down in, I don't know if it's reached uh, Sydney, but uh, we've had a major fire at a recycling plant out uh, just on the outskirts of uh, Melbourne, uh, which is sending smoke right across the place. And uh, also the trains all stopped on Wednesday. Was it Wednesday? Thursday. Thursday, you, yeah. Well, you've, had a, well, you've had a big week, and uh, that, that pollution is no doubt quite dangerous from what I, what yeah. I have read so far. They're talking about these um, particulates, little particles that can get into people's yes. lungs and can cause longer-term health problems. Uh, they really don't yes. care about us. Yeah, well, there you go. Anyway, uh, that's not why we've got you in to talk to us. We're, there's lots of things been going on. One of the things you were, we were talking about was this uh, decision from uh, the Fair Work Commission uh, that uh, perhaps casuals might be able to become full, uh, permanent employees. Yes, we've discussed this uh, one or two occasions in the last couple of months. Um, just to provide a little bit of background, uh, the, uh, of course, alongside of and uh, deeply uh, connected to uh, rising inequality uh, is uh, the, uh, the modern capitalist uh, reality of precarious work. And it takes several forms, of course, and one of those is uh, casualised em- uh, employment. And what has been happening over really since the early 1990s, and many of your listeners will be familiar with this, is that we've had a transition from uh, the casual worker being someone who is irregularly employed uh, to cover uh, the short-term needs of an employer to a situation where uh, we, we now talk about, although there's no formal legal status for such a person, of the permanent casual, whether it's a permanent part-time casual or a permanent full-time casual. Yeah, because in the past, in the past, of course, if a person was there and they were being called casual and they were there for a certain length of time, it became obvious that they were actually required. Yes, yes. Uh, the, The situation, however, is that something like 40% of the Australian workforce is now in some form of precarious employment and uh, that is deeply uh, a major causal factor, although not the only one, uh, in uh, driving down wages, putting downward pressure on both uh, the wages and conditions that are in enterprise agreements and also uh, those that are established uh, in awards, uh, particularly for those workers who are not covered by an enterprise agreement where the award becomes paramount. So do you think that so, one of the reasons for the casualisation was actually union busting? Absolutely. Uh, there's, there's no question of that. And I think one of the big problems that was going on, I think it's still apparent actually from time to time, is that within uh, the union movement itself, the mentality in a lot of union shops was to be somewhat dismissive of the casualised worker, especially the the, work, the casual worker who was uh, working regularly, if I can put it like that. And that meant that we took a long time to work out that a casual worker uh, is a worker. 
<laughs> right. Looking, yeah. looking, looking to uh, earn a wage uh, and to try and do that safely and be able to take some money home for their personal needs and that, of course, of any uh, uh, family relationships that they have. So now, with casualisation, I mean, casual being casual in the past, there was a loading because there was no permanency. Uh, and then the employer was supposedly, the employee was compensated with the lack of permanency. And now, of course, being a permanent worker meant that you got holiday pay, sick leave. Uh, that was part of normal, the normal world. But it's not the normal yeah. world anymore, right? Uh, well, the, the normal world now is that uh, the uh, regular casual or permanent casual is a part of the business model for most employers. It does increase the rate of exploitation of workers generally, not just the casual workers themselves. There is, of course, the 25% on the ordinary hourly rate uh, penalty payment uh, that is available to casuals, and that, that hasn't changed for a long, long time. I couldn't trace back to when that 25% rate was established. But it's entirely arguable whether it's sufficient to cover off on what casual workers do not get because of their status as casuals, which is most of the national employment standards and uh, some other entitlements as well. So uh, the, the, status, uh, the, the status of the casual worker is very fraught and it's a part of the inequality uh, uh, trend that is part of modern capitalism. And, and really what, what, what it's actually doing is changing the entire landscape, one would assume that even with this thing about um, uh, young people being told that they have to work for $4 as a retail assistant yes. is actually uh, uh, designed to ensure that wages will always be low, everybody will be in you know, precarious work, and that for some reason or other they're going to get loyalty from people because of out of sheer fear and desperation. Yes, well, um, some some listeners will appreciate this, what I'm going to say now, and others uh, may not. But um, to, this year is the 150th anniversary of the publication of Karl Marx's Volume 1 of Capital. That's all right. Anybody who's been and listening that, to this program, Humphrey has been telling us all about that. Oh, good on him. <laughs> Terrific. I've missed that, and I apologise for that. Now, in that, he uh, Marx uh, and... It's really quite common sense, really, is that uh, employers, in order to keep downward pressure on wages, do need what Marx called uh, an industrial reserve army of workers who are well and truly uh, underemployed or out of work. Now, the modern language for that, of course, is uh, this phrase, the precariat or the insecure workforce. And its economic purpose in the system uh, is to uh, is to put downward pressure on wages and conditions and weaken the collective bargaining power of workers, not just in a single workplace but across multiple workplaces. Now, the modern, the 21st century uh, form of precarious work. Well, there's several forms of it, and one of them, of course, is introduced in a statutory way, including the the recent path internships, which is a, an utter disgrace to the Australian government. And, and so, quite possibly illegal, uh, it seems. Well, 
well, I haven't been up to speed with that, and I would, you know, welcome that it would be very good to have further elaboration on that if uh, if uh, you haven't already done it so far. The, however, the interesting thing I think is that the union movement in the early 2000s began to sort of realise that it could not afford to allow union members themselves to be dismissive of or denigratory towards casualised workers. And not all unions woke up to this at the same time, but uh, enough did to establish on top of the 25% casual loading, but to establish into awards a, uh, a new standard that enabled a casual worker to ask or request to convert uh, to becoming a permanent. Now, this was the first effort to enable workers to have some degree of power to, um, to, reverse, to try and reverse the trend. The, uh, it was not unimportant. And, uh, it, it, however, what, you learn something new every week. I thought that standard that was established, for example, in several awards in the early 2000s was commonly applied across most of the 120-odd awards uh, in the for, for the Australian workforce. No, but you see, it's well, a war. No, so what you're saying is that it's a war. Every 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 award has to be won. Is that what it... Um, yeah? Essentially, yes. Before the award review process, which we're subjected to these days, came along, then unions would apply, would, would seek to... Um, win a struggle to get a new clause into the award and that's what happened with the what is called the casuals conversion clause in the early 2000s but it only happened in i don't know about um, from what i can work out about 10 to 20 of the 120 odd awards mm, right. now um uh, i'm familiar with it mainly because i've worked in the manufacturing workers union and there it's quite uh, common to, from time to time, deal with uh, grievances and small disputes around the application of that part of the award. Now, in the casuals case, there were, uh, once again, this is a full bench of the Fair Work Commission replicating the processes that went on in the penalty rates uh, decision, the yeah. notorious penalty rates decision that has helped to make Australia more uh, unequal when it comes to wages and conditions. So we're talking about the same process, a full bench, although different, a different composition, uh, responding, uh, having to conduct, under, as required by the Fair Work Act, a review of the award, and in this case, dealing with applications from unions for changes to all awards in regard to casual conversion. Now, now, broadly speaking, the union, there were two categories of changes that the unions were seeking. Uh, before going further on that, I might say the employer... Oh, you, you, you just, you're just um, a drama queen. You, you were almost going to give us the punchline and you didn't. Yes, well... Um, <laughs> I, I just remind now, because you did that, I'm going to tell yes. listeners that they're listening to Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim yes. and we're having a yarn with Don Sutherland. We're talking about the recent decision to uh, by the Fair Work Commission 
to uh, allow casuals to have permanent status, perhaps. Go on, keep going. Well, just, just to keep you on tenterhooks. Well, yeah, that's right. That, <laughs> the, the unions sought two categories of, well, arguably three, but two categories of changes. But I thought I should say and get it out of the way now what the employers were up to. Oh, yeah. What did they want? Apart from opposing what the unions were pushing for... They wanted the, the, the workers to give them their firstborn. That's what they wanted, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. We haven't got Game of Thrones yet. <laughs> it starts next week, doesn't it? Anyway, so uh, what the employers wanted to do was remove the current responsibility that employers have in the award to tell workers that at a certain point, uh, tell casual workers uh-huh. that at a certain point in their period as a casual, they're allowed to ask for permanency. Are they meant to do that now? Yeah, they, well, depending on the award, yes. But right. what the employer was asking for was for that right for a worker to be told that they, that they are now entitled to to ask for permanency. So they should call uh, that the grilled, the grilled clause. The grilled clause, you know. Because that's what happened to all those poor workers. Go on, yeah. Yeah, it's just so... It's, it's, it's almost... It's patheticness, if there's such a word. Mm. Beggars believe. So let's turn now to what the unions... The two categories of things that the unions were trying to do. Firstly, because only... I'm not sure exactly, but 10 to 20 awards have the current standard where a worker has to ask. The ACTU, working with a number of unions, was seeking to have that applied to all awards, to shift it from the 20... Yeah, well, it sounds reasonable. Yeah, yeah, it's a step-by-step process, yeah. ...of conversion on request. To, uh, to shift it, that, that minimum standard, which is nearly 20 years old, into all awards. Good. Yep. Okay. Now, that sounds fair. Yes. Except that the reason why there is a secondary, a second category of claims is because how ineffectual that has become and has in no way been able to uh, prevent casualisation becoming a business model is that uh, is that therefore the ACTU and significantly the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union was seeking a new standard which we've reported before and that is that instead of uh, the entitlement of a worker to ask to be converted to permanent that at six months it becomes automatic would be deemed, yes, it would be, it's called deeming, oh, would right. be deemed at six months to, uh, uh, to be permanent, with a right attached to that, that if they wanted to continue as casual, they just would tell their employer that would be put in writing, and they would continue as a casual if they wished that to occur. So the ACTU stroke AMWU claim did not interfere in any way with the rights of those workers who did want to be casuals for their own personal reasons. But it ensured that the employer would lose absolute control over whether, uh, over saying uh, yes or no to someone who might like to be casual. And then you wouldn't have so to have the argument about whether there would be a discussion 
about um, this, uh, you know, conversion. Yes. Did they also uh, have a thing in it about uh, it being uh, illegal to coerce uh, employees to sign a document that says that they want to be casual and also if it was found that an employer had done that? And uh, what, what about the idea of uh, a worker being let go because they didn't they wanted to become permanent well the the way in which the the draft clause was put together by the AMW and the ACTU would recognize that there would be employers who would try and do that but there is text there, there are paragraphs if you like in the draft clause that would enable uh, uh, a worker to seek uh, uh, either uh, union assistance to be able to uh, prevent that sort of behaviour, and the, you know it would be in effect a breach of the award for the employer to do that in most circumstances. Yeah. So there was a built-in there was a built-in protection, not absolute, I don't think, uh, in the real world, because employers with their employer advocates, employer organisations would no doubt find a way to play games with it, but because that's what they do. And but that's how it stands no. at the moment, right? That's how they did yeah. pass this. No, no, no. no. So, what, so we've described the two categories uh, of claims that the unions were pushing for them, uh, and they didn't the get passed. The first category was accepted by the Fair Work Commission. Broadly speaking, they will now be uh, shifted into all uh, awards that did not have it uh, a the casual conversion clause that is nearly 20, 15, 20 years old. Right. And that is that a worker who is casual can uh, seek um, uh, seek a, a conversion to permanency, but I believe it's after 12 months, not six months, mm. which is the standard in the manufacturing award. It is. As well, What are, very, what's when you say that you can ask to be made permanent, is that just the same as me asking at any point? To be permanent, I mean, what obligation does the boss have uh, to even consider what I'm asking? Well, there are in the manufacturing award, for example, the employer the employer is required to have a proper discussion with the with the worker, and there are reasons. There are, I mean, it's quite easy for the employer to uh, dodge the request, if you like. And that would apply before that. That could apply before the six-month period. Like a worker who is casual could ask, and the employer might say yes. Who knows? There might be a reason why the employer would say yes. Uh, but the, what the award does is it, it is activate it. If it's before six months, it's not a right. It's something you can try for, and the employer might say yes, or they. They might say no, and they might add on to their answer no. They might say, don't come back again. Mm. Um, but at six months, it's a right in the manufacturing award. All right? Now, uh, so what has happened, in essence, is that the um, uh, the, fair, the full bench of the Fair Work Commission has agreed that those that fundamental concept should be become now a standard in all of the awards uh, that it is responsible for, 120 of them or 122 or something like that, awards. And now that is... Now, the ACTU has 
been quite fulsome in saying that this is a small step but is an important uh, small victory uh, in the ongoing struggle to try and get some control over uh, casualisation and precarious work. Well, before you go on, uh, I want because we've only got a little bit more time to go, and I want to divert you to this other thing, which is actually about the small step leading to a battle. On uh, Friday, uh, there was a rally down at um, Sale around the Longford yeah. dispute, and it was it yeah. had some pretty big uh, guns down there. Sally McManus was down there, but Bill Shorten was down there, and Jed Carney. And every person that did, uh, I was. It was reported to me that every person who did a speech there uh, used the word "the system's broken and it needs to change." Uh, so there's this quite uh, clearly a building up of a campaign that Sally McManus began, but it's a slow build. What's your view on this? Well, I think. Um, uh, well, well, Yes, there are, in, that is one example, and it's, it, it, it's pretty, it's pretty, pretty bloody awful for the workers in the community in uh, in and around uh, that area. It is a, almost a replica of the CUB dispute. Yeah, yes, uh, sacking people and sort of, saying we'll re, rehire you for half the money. Yeah. Yep, and there are disputes like that happening all over Australia at the moment, in which there is some form of dispute over some form of precarious work and the associated downward pressure on wages and conditions, health and safety and so on. Yeah, but, you know, look, Bill Bill Shorten, I mean, we really got hardly any time left. Bill Shorten, he stands there and basically he's saying that uh, he's in line with the notion that the system needs to be changed. But, you know, of course, people have voted for Labor before and had their backs Mm. turned. This is very odd behaviour. Yeah, and this is a big deal. This is a big deal. Uh, Do you believe that... um, have you got any practical uh, suggestions to people who are actually part of the Labor Party to ensure that, say, there was a return of a Labor government, that they didn't turn their back on workers again? Yes. Everyone both in the Labor Party and, and, and not in it has to get involved in this campaign with a fundamental attitude. Incremental change is inadequate for the situation we are in from a worker's point of view. From a working class point of view, fiddling around with minor reforms at the edge of the current Fair Work Act will not be enough. Therefore, if you're in the Labor Party, pay strict attention to what is evolving now in the union movement about the big changes that need to be made to the Fair Work Act, particularly an unrestricted right to strike, an unrestricted right to industrial action, particularly that. But there are others as well. And the restoration of the status of award negotiations above the status of enterprise bargaining. That one is perhaps more controversial, but I think more and more union leaders are now grabbing hold of the right to strike. So if you're in the Labor Party, you ought to be working out the text of resolutions that you can move at your sub-branches that call upon the Labor Party apparatchiks at the top, especially Bill Shorten and uh, Brendan O'Connor, to accept the need for comprehensive change to the Fair Work Act. The second thing is for people who are not in the Labor Party, 
and who are genuine union committed people. We must also, we must also find our ways in our unions, including defiance of those people who will, in the unions, who will accept incremental change and then dress the mutton up as lamb and call it um, the best we can do in the circumstances. We must push for, for significant change, particularly around our rights to industrial action. And we can do that by engaging in serious discussions at our union meetings and doing the, doing, then doing the sort of the more common thing these days, unfortunately, of uh, writing emails to our and engaging in dialogue at web pages and so on. Well, I think that um, that's really key. We're going to have to leave it there. But definitely industrial action uh, where um, it's the best way of finding the bosses because payment is involuntary. That's exactly right. Thanks very much, Don. And that's it. You heard it here on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. We uh, went to Kularu about the fire. We uh, went to uh, Venezuela with Fred, who's coming later in the uh, July. Uh, July the 29th, down at the Hub, going to talk about Venezuela. Uh, Lou Wheeler about mm. uh, the housing uh, meeting. Get along to the meeting today at 2pm in uh, West Brunswick, Brunswick that, West. That's right, at uh, 27 Peacock Street off Albion. And uh, we had This Is The Week That Was, and we just heard from Don about how we need to change things. This is Phil Oakes. That's what I want to hear. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. Oh, you tell me that your last good dollar is gone And you say that your pockets are bare And you tell me that your clothes are tattered and torn And nobody seems to care Now, don't tell me your troubles No, I don't have the time to spare But if you want to get together and fight Good buddy, that's what I want Tell me that your job was taken away by a big old greasy machine And you tell me that you don't collect no more pay And your belly is growing lean Now if I had the jobs to give You know I'd give them all away But don't waste your breath calling out That you don't have nothing to do And you keep on wasting your time And you say when you want to get your family some food You gotta spend in a really You've been listening to a 3CR podcast Produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR In Melbourne, Australia For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au